This is always the best part. The, the awkward beginning? Yeah, because how long has it been? It's been three years and we still have these awkward intros. But I feel like it's, maybe that's the sign of authenticity that people like who are not following. <laughs> um, as long as you will believe that, then that's fine. Mm. Or is it just like one of those performances that makes people feel like genuine? Yeah, we, we're super geniuses and we're just so good that we dumb it down because we pretend that we don't know an intro to our podcast but yeah if you're listening, <laughs> listening to us for the first time we are phd this podcast a podcast about academia culture and, and social justice across the stem humanities divide i'm dr zion Yao, representing humanities i'm dr liz lane representing stem and for the first time in forever we're in the same room recording! Yeah, which is not obvious because, of course, we just released like an episode where we did record, but that was actually a number of months ago. That's true. So it's a bit yeah. deceptive because we do like film and not record a bunch in a row and then intersperse it with more immediate ones. But yes. this is the first time we've seen each other in like a year, over a year? Yes. When Wait, when did we see each other last? At TED, right? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, I saw you at TED when I was in Vancouver. Had an interesting experience there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we should keep this up and try to meet each other at least more than once a year. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. But now we're actually meeting in London, England. Yeah. The heart of empire. I, I was going to do a London accent. Oh, sorry. And, no, I can't. You, I don't have one. Yeah, you don't. Do you have one? No, but also I'm not going to try. Hmm. Irish people have a lovely accent. They do. Yeah. I just wanted to like pet them and just like, oh, do it again, do it again. So condescending. I know, that's why I didn't do it. Okay, good, okay. <laughs> but I Apologies thought it. For I thought, our oh, that's listeners. so cute. No, <laughs> there's still this sort of um, a moment of disconnect when I'm hearing people talk to me with all various British accents because I'm still conscious of the fact that it's an accent. So it's not just the content, but like the paying attention to like mm-hmm. the presentation itself. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, this is not what the podcast is going to be about. Yes, um, we could talk more about like, I guess, but my first half year. But we are here to give you <laughs> a, by our standards a, a structured and informative episode about applying to grad school. Yes, it is that time of year. We've gotten comments or questions about applying to graduate school from our various listeners, and we also thought this would be a good time to update our advice given our advanced stages in the process. Yeah, that makes us sound like we're sick. Advanced state, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, how would you say it? I, I lecturer don't... Yao, how would you say this? Hmm. I guess like... Do they say lecturer like... Yao? Nah, that doesn't sound weird. Yao. Yeah, just Dr. Yao. Hmm. Uh, but maybe, hmm, now that we've progressed in our careers? Yes, maybe. sure. Anyway, regardless, so we've, we've had some questions about this, and we realized that we it's odd that we don't have an episode talking about applying to grad school. Like, we... Um, our interview with Beverly, we do talk about it a bit, but this is us trying to give a give focused advice on what it's like to on applying for graduate school in STEM and humanities. Mm-hmm. Hey, Liz, do you want to start? What what's involved in a STEM? Mm. Well, the first thing is so you've decided to go to grad school. You've decided to spend your next five, hopefully five years in the humanities, more like six or seven. You, yes. In the in the North America, that is. In the UK, it's three or four years. But Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a similar trend for mm-hmm. the STEM because they usually have their master's beforehand. Yeah. 
so you've decided to actually do that, and I think that in itself is its own process. Um, and hopefully, when you're actually deciding to do grad school, you've actually had some serious conversations with people about what the process is going to be like for you, um, what the job prospects are, and about what it really means to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I think you should not listen to any of the rest of this podcast or not really genuinely consider going to grad school without having thought about those things. Yeah, otherwise it's very dangerous and in good conscience it's very hard. I think especially in the humanities now, like people are wrestling with this sort of question of like, do you encourage your brilliant students to go into graduate school? And the thing is we never want to deter people because then it, uh, it, it always tends to fall along lines of privilege. But at the same time, we do want people to be adequately informed about what the job prospects are mm-hmm. and what the toll is like. And so what I've been doing to recommend to people is to make sure that if they don't already follow higher education news, I tell them, go to the Chronicle of Higher Education, go to Inside Higher Ed. Uh, perhaps maybe there's more, maybe mm-hmm. I'm guessing in your case, like science has like some stuff that's more about the Yeah, profession. science and nature are, magazines are getting better at um, putting these kind of career focuses in there where they highlight particular topics of scientists. The big thing is that you've actually met a scientist, done some research to see, um, to really see what that lifestyle is like, what the experience is like. And to think about, is that what you want to do? Does that help you fit your career goals? And do you understand the, the bleakness of the, the precarity of the job situation? Mm-hmm. Because higher education in all countries um, is, of course, under attack. And they call it by different names. In the UK, as I learned, they call it casualization. But in huh. North America, we know it as adjunctification. Oh. Like this... Um, steering away from giving people permanent or in the UK they call them permanent but in North America we call them tenure track jobs instead mm-hmm. outsourcing that labor to, pe- uh, to people um, with short term contracts without benefits mm-hmm. is overwhelmingly a trend I think in all our disciplines particularly in the humanities but also in yeah, science and, as well yeah and STEM I, you would see that in terms of um, this extended postdoc or needing a postdoctoral education to get any type of job whether it's in academia which might make more sense to you but also in the fields of government um pharmaceutical sciences their people are often they require this kind of postdoctoral education even after your graduate education because the phd is not seen as real work real work experience so you're coming across a lot and it will probably only that trend will continue in the next few years mm-hmm. so yeah, I was going to maybe also add into the <laughs> education part of it, which is that if you're in literature and you're listening to this, go to the MLA job list. Hmm. This is what the, the annual list every year of like how many jobs are, and you will see exactly what number has uh, have jobs have been posted in your field, and that will be a good reflection for you. And I feel like that's like the most honest thing that we can, one of the uh, things that you really need to be aware of. And when you're looking at these publications, don't just like look at the ones that are just like how to apply to grad school, but just see like what are the topics that are coming up? What are sort of the conversations in the field? What are mm-hmm. people worried about? Like I think it's just good to be sort of plugged into like the general discourse, even if it doesn't seem directly related to your immediate question of applying to graduate school. Right. Right. I completely agree. Now, let's say you've already done that and you're like, no, I'm going to grad school. I'm, I'm, I'm a genius. I'm going to do this. Actually, I don't want to say that because you don't have to be a genius to go to grad school or finish grad school. I think grad school, actually, when you finish, it's about being smart, but it's a lot more about perseverance Yes. in the end. Endurance. It is like it's a marathon race, and it's that there are some people who are sprinters, and there are some people who you know will pace themselves. And yeah, 
And also being aware, as, as Liz was saying, that like it's not just if you're going for academia as a career or even like trying to do policy stuff as a scientist, you, you have to calculate in your life plans. It's not just the length of the PhD, but you're going to have to do postdocs and fellowships. And it's going to be a while before you have security of a permanent job with benefits and things like yeah. that. So that's yeah. also something that to bear in mind. Like you're going to be structuring your life for the next several years around that when perhaps your colleagues who are your friends going to, they went to high school with or even undergrad are going to be starting their careers and like the your relationship to different life milestones is going to be different. Yeah. Financially too. Like that's a big thing. Yeah. Living on the stipend. So if you've decided to go to grad school, then the next question is to get an informed opinion of where you should be applying to. So you should be developing, now cultivating a list of schools that you think you should apply to that fit your research interests, but also some of your lifestyle goals and where you want to live. I I remember when I was applying for grad school, I just thought, oh, I'll apply everywhere. It's expensive. You have to pay every time you apply. Yeah, well, yes. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Addendum to that. Make your list of schools but I would reach out to those schools and email them because they often do have fee waivers for people That's they true. like. And so I I feel, I didn't realize that other people didn't do things like this, but I actually would cold email people I wanted it to work with and ask them questions or see if I could interview with them. And I also, and then I, I have to admit though, I, I know that's not feasible for everyone. I was fortunate enough to be in the Northeast where there were already like a high concentration of schools. And so when I said, oh, I'll come visit you, that was because it was a $20 train ride. Mm -hmm. And so I know not everyone has that option. And also I, um, as an um, underrepresented minority, there were conferences that were kind of designed to like the, the like the ABRCAMS, the Annual Biomedical Research Conference for um, Minority Students. I think I butchered that acronym. But I went there, and that was a great resource to connect with graduate schools. And when I went there, they all of them had fee waivers, and so I just mm -hmm. I applied through fee waivers, and I had that FaceTime opportunity. And so I think um, if you are an undergraduate student, and I'm trying to be careful of how I say this because I don't want to assume that you have resources that you don't at your home institution. But if you are connected with a uh, in the STEM, if you're connected with a research lab. And at this stage, most people are, if they are going to be considered as strong candidates for um, a graduate program, you should try to see if you can get um, your advisors to pay for you to attend a conference to present or an abstract of your research. Because this is like where you get that FaceTime with the schools. They will, they will actually send representatives and have a booth. And they actually, some of them are particularly targeted for undergraduates. And that's going to help you... Um, figure out which schools to apply to, but also get those free fee waivers. Mm -hmm. And of course, in humanities, we don't really have that opportunity because of the way that our work is structured. But what you should be doing is thinking like, what professors have I had um, good connections with so I can just go and talk to them? Mm -hmm. Like just start, also just start setting up those conversations. I don't think that there's as many opportunities to dip into the professional experience of academia and humanities because mm -hmm. it's not like we have projects that we can take students on in the same way we don't tend to have funding to like send ourselves to conferences much mm -hmm. less the graduate students but still there's ways that you can be proactive in terms of like trying to see what what the state of the field is like um and also to sort of get the feel for your references like that's the next right. big thing like you're connecting with people because you want to make sure that they can write you strong letters of reference and so on the one hand like 
part of the job of being an academic is to write references. And so don't be worried about asking about that. That is actually part of our job. But the thing is, there's a difference between just getting any reference and making sure that you ask if someone will be able to write a strong reference, letter reference, and phrasing it in a way so they could be honest and back out if they can't. Yeah. 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 Like, so I think some phrasing could be like, um, I want to know if you can write me a strong letter of reference. Like just framing it like that is, mm -hmm. is very different. Or do you feel like you know enough? And also making sure when you do that move, remind them when you encountered them, how long you've known them, what maybe essays right. they've written, and give them your CV. Because they also are going to need materials so to write the best possible letter mm -hmm. that they can. Yeah. So I would think uh, most schools are going to require three letters. Sometimes I would actually... Um, try to, if you can, find four people because sometimes weird things can happen and you want to have maybe one person in the, in the wings who can write for you. But when I'm thinking about who I want to write for, let's just assume I have three. And then I think, okay, this person I work directly for as in the lab, one person maybe I did an internship with one summer, someone maybe I took a class with, or they were kind of my academic mentor and they kind of are the outside person who knows me long, long term. Um, what I want you to do is Think about how do these people know you, what unique strengths do they have that they know about you that another person doesn't. Because you don't want to have three letters that say the same thing. You wouldn't want to have three letters from people that you took three different classes with. I mean, because they'd just be saying the same thing, which is you're a good student. So put that information in your request when you write to them. So I would say, dear professor such and such, um, I am applying for graduate school and I was hoping you'd be able, I was wondering if you would be able to write a strong letter for me. Um, I'm applying for a program that has X ideals and I think that our experience together on this project would help highlight my strengths as a collaborator or like as a um, something that you did, right? But you're saying that language so that they kind of know that's what you want them to write about or a suggestion mm -hmm. of this is the strength, this is how our relationship was unique. And if you tailor each of your request letters in that way, you'll actually kind of, you can't control what they'll say, but it'll help diversify and make a statement very full about you. And it'll also help you understand where you need to expand. In other words, if if you if you have a hard time finding rec recommendation letter writers, or you, you seem that you're only getting people who you took a class with, that may not be the best highlight of your strengths. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's trickier again in the humanities because you have less opportunity uh, to like work intimately with people. So, some of the like the specificity that Liz is talking about, like necessarily to be like, there would be yeah. less um, opportunity for that. And so, if you're a humanities person listening and you're getting stressed out, don't worry. Yeah. Um, and so the next step I'd say is after you said they said that they'll write for you is to make sure that you prepare I think a package of information for them. Yeah. So making sure you have their uh, the CV things that you want them to highlight, but also give them the list of like which schools and what, what are the deadlines. Yeah. You want to make it as easy as possible because when application season is happening, people are probably having to write lots of different letters mm -hmm. and they can't keep track of deadlines. And so you're going to have to remind them. And that's also something that, that is also sort of anxiety inducing when you're an undergrad um, is that you have to sort of set up the schedule for them and for yourself and sort of built in for yourself that you, that you may have to remind them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes reference uh, writers can be like, I have friends that, where who had letters that were never submitted on time, which is why the idea of having a backup, as Liz said, is really good. Yeah, yeah, I've I've had that happen. So, 
it's just good. I do know that students may struggle. So when you say three and like four, I don't even, I don't know four faculty that way. Mm-hmm. Um, now I can't quite speak to the humanities side, but I, I, what I find when I'm talking to students is they kind of draw a blank when they think of who could write a letter for them because they're not thinking broadly enough about what they've actually even done. Um, so as an example, I had a student and he said, I don't know who can write for me. Maybe you can write for me and then the other postdoc in the lab. And I thought, no, we're from the same lab. That doesn't help you. Um, and then he's like, well, I don't really know. Like, I guess there's like this, you know, coordinator of my program. And then I said, well, didn't you do an internship last year? Didn't you do like a two week thing or a month? It was like a two month experience, um, at a hospital somewhere. And he said, oh yeah, I did do that. And it's like, that's your letter. That, that is an ex- that you can have that person write for you or so if you did a volunteer effort if you did some sort of outreach um, those are also opportunities for someone to write a letter about you so think also remember to think broadly maybe even look at your own resume and think oh could I ask someone at one of those experiences I listed to write a letter for me and um, it's kind of late in the season but I would encourage you to do this kind of exercise maybe in the spring before you're going to apply. That's only because if you find that you have a weakness, um, let's say you don't have a letter writer, that gives you enough time to try to develop a re- more of a relationship with someone to where you think they could write a letter for you. Um, so the, I guess this is also another point we should bring up, which is the scheduling of it. So yeah. once you've decided for, for yourself when you want to go to grad school, is like the deadlines are usually late fall, early yeah. winter, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and so there's, so on the one hand, you have to sort of bear that deadline, those deadlines in mind. And so that means you also should ask for references, I'd say like at least a number of months in advance, maybe even at the start of the semester, ideally. Uh, but it is possible, I guess, to ask within a couple of weeks, but that's not ideal at all. It's not ideal for the, for the faculty. I would, <laughs> I would make it proportional to how well you know that person. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was an undergrad, I worked with, I ha- I worked in a lab, and I knew this person really well. And so I, he knew I was applying to graduate school, so I let him know that I was getting applications and I wanted to apply. However, there were also some opportunities that kind of came up um, relatively short notice, as in, oh, wait, there's a fellowship or there's something, and there's only like three a week or a month or something. So I, I did that. That worked, but only because, one, he'd written for me before, and I felt like we had a relationship where... I could do that. Like he knew it would be coming, mm-hmm. but if it, but for, but I wouldn't have suggested that otherwise for lots of other people. Yeah. And other major scheduling things to bear in mind is if you're applying to the States, the GRE. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, if you're doing the general, uh, general GRE, you can book that anytime, but also places get booked up fast around where you live. Mm-hmm. So you have to have, give yourself enough leeway to make sure the scheduling works. But also if you're applying in a subject like English, some places also have the special subject test and those only happen a number of times a year maybe like twice a year mm-hmm. and so you're gonna have to figure out where the closest place is and if you could still uh, get booked for it and then sort of arrange um your schedule in terms of like studying for the GRE so especially so again like in the applying in graduate school for the U.S. is sort of two things on the one hand you're doing all this research on schools and trying to get letters and your projects specifically for the applications but then you also have to do all this work for the GRE and what's really insulting, in my opinion, about it is like you have to pay to do the jury and also pay to send your scores. Yeah. It's a total racket. Yeah. And 
um, side note, um, there there is a movement to mm-hmm. remove the GRE from admissions considerations, and there's research around how that actually is not an indicator of your success. So if you're interested in that, you should also follow um, Joshua Hall. He's on Twitter, and he's also at UNC, at University of North Carolina. And he's been, he's has he is someone that I know has kind of been um, accumulating the, the schools and the subjects that don't require the GRE anymore. So look up Joshua Hall for more information on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got your letters. Um, and the, the beauty of that is once you've got your letters and you know they can write a solid, solid letter for you, they can write for almost all of your schools, essentially. And um, once they've done one, it's actually easier to do the next. Mm-hmm. Most faculty I know, some faculty, my, the ones I've had experience with, they, ha- they take their one letter and they use that to write the, the next letters they write for you, even mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And so most um, schools are going to have pretty similar components, maybe a research, okay, for STEM, um, a research statement and then a personal statement, and those aren't the same thing. <laughs> and, um, hmm. Yeah, a research statement and a personal statement. And so the research statement is going to be like a summary, usually it's like two pages, definitely not usually more, um, of what your research has been. So what have you done in terms of research? Tell me about your project. And what they're looking for is can you actually describe what you did and what your contribution was? How how are you describing research? Um, If you have a paper, it's not a – I mean – it's not that they thought you cured something. That's not what they're looking for. So don't try to overhype this. But they really want to see if you have the vocabulary and the understanding of the field. The personal statement, in contrast, may include highlights of your research, as in, I did a summer at X um, institution. But it's more about like what your personal journey in science is and what you want to do with the PhD. What is your goal, your goals, and your vision of the science? It is not so explicitly like I worked with protein X and had like X, you know, Y results. Mm-hmm. I say in the humanities more, it's just the research proposal. We don't really see the, the personal one as much. And of course, the tricky thing is like, again, you probably don't have the same exposure to research in the same way that STEM does. But what you should be doing is showing like your dedication, like that you know the field, but also you're able to put together arguments. Oh, the mm. most dangerous thing if you're applying for literature do not put in your application that you love literature. <laughs> like that, yeah. people just will write that they just love reading. And then like, that's sort of a given. And also if you, <laughs> that's the reason why you want to do it, it is not the profession for you. Mm-hmm. Of course we love doing it, but like that's a very dis- different engagement with the subject. And I think that's why in master's programs, but also early PhD when there's um, no terminal MAs, people get very disillusioned because they come to the subject because there's a love there. But you have a different relationship professionally with as a critic mm-hmm. you're going to be reading more secondary criticism than you are primary text that you love and so i think that's one thing to sort of separate that perhaps the you there's a strong emotional component to doing graduate school mm-hmm. in the humanities and you have to sort of figure out for yourself do you love the subject but, but do you want to do the subject is a right. very different question there's the same parallel with med school don't just say like you love like there, and there's a way to write it, to craft it, if you want to say that. Like, if it is actually true that you want to study cancer because your relative or someone died of cancer, that's true. But you also want to make sure that you care about the science of things that are happening and not just the um, the love of, or like, I have like a, a personal connection. I'm not saying this correctly. But you, you, you definitely, 
similar to what Zion was saying for humanities and the STEM that does happen. And given that faculty read this so frequently, um, you, you kind of want to make sure you don't wax poetic about, um, poetry in our case, but (laughs) (laughs) about like, like, you know, or like for med med school students, especially like I, I went in the hospital. I think doctors are so cool. And like, you know, what doctors do, doctors actually have very difficult lives. And so it, it almost is a signal that you may not understand what you're getting into. Yeah, you haven't done the research and perhaps you're not mature enough to yes. deal with the topic. So it's about the signaling. You, you don't want to signal that the things you like about the, the discipline you're about to enter, um, if the things you like about the discipline don't reflect the experience of the people in the discipline, it's going to read as dissonance and they're going to catch that immediately and it's not going to be positive for your application. And actually it would be better for you in the long run because if that's the reason why you want to go into these things, it's you would find it very difficult. It is not Grey's Anatomy. It's not, um, yeah, grad school is not that. But anyway, so those that's like a, a general highlight and I know there's some complexity around that. I know that some people do put that kind of personal detail in their stories, but they're also doing it in a very careful, artful way, which is why you should write this, start early with this as well, because you want multiple people to read it. Mm -hmm. And I would say with any type of applications you're doing, um, I find feedback to be helpful and confusing. So let's say I have two people reading my essay, and then the one person says, that's awful, I hate when essays start that way. And I think you should do it in this particular format. Um, and then person two may say, oh, I really like that. That was thoughtful. Like, this is really encouraging. I liked it. And so it leaves you with this like confusion of like, well, who do I listen to and what do I do? And then let's say you actually changed your um, essay to fit the completely aligned with like opinion of person one. And then opinion person three gets it and they actually completely disagree with what their other person just said. And so it can be very confusing when you're writing um, any sort of statements and getting lots of advice. So I would suggest that you weigh people's opinions accordingly. So if you know that someone you're writing kind of generally has opinions or they, they kind of skew to one side versus the other, keep that in mind and try to figure out, do they all have any general themes and try to keep those themes. And then lastly, it's still your document and it has to be authentic to you. So try to stay within the range of all the opinions you're getting, but write something that's true to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of talking about the substance <laughs> of what the research proposal in the humanities would look like, I think there's a, a sort of line that you want to walk in North American context, I'll go to the UK context later, uh, that on the one hand you're showing that you could conceptualize what a large project is and what your main interests are. Um, but that's not the project they're going to hold you to. But Mm -hmm. I think also what you're trying to convey is that you're someone who wants to learn Mm -hmm. without saying it, like saying it as obviously like that, but to show like a type of intellectual curiosity that you know about the field, that you can put together a project, which again, you're not going to be beholden to. Um, And so there's a tension between the specificity and like through that specificity showing like your ability, but also a sense of openness, Uh, especially I think in terms of when you're going to talk about like which people you want to work with, the difficulty is like you have no uh, access usually at this point to like what the politics in the department yeah. are, but you want to make sure that you're also like gearing a project that speaks to the strengths of departments and may- and more than one person because mm-hmm. you don't know if they're going to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know if maybe they're looking at the application like we have too many students. Oh, but they this what? But the student looks this application looks really great, but we don't know what else they're interested in. And we don't have anyone to supervise them. Right. So there's like a, a strategy in terms of like how many people you name, but also like how you present the different fields. 
and whether or not the department can uh, speak to them and support you adequately. In the UK, it's different because again, the reason why PhDs are shorter in the UK across all disciplines is because there's no coursework. You go straight into your research. And so there's much more focus on that, the fact that you have to have a crafted proposal um, that's perhaps more cohesive, more coherent than you would if you're applying to a combined MA PhD in the mm -hmm. States. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I actually agree with the um, choosing people in your list. I, I can't remember. There is a part where you want to mention why you want to go to the school, why you're applying to that school. Mm. And, and I think that might be part of the personal statement. But why you're applying and who you'd like to work with, and you always want to mention more than one person. Always. Because like Zine said, the person may not be there when you get here. They may already have too many students and they're overloaded and they're not getting enough students on the other side so that can disadvantage you. Or you might get there and just not work well with that person. They could be terrible. They might yeah. be a star in your field, but perhaps they're not a good advisor. And of course, as an undergraduate, you're not maybe plugged into this type of networks that mm -hmm. would let you know that this person is not a good advisor. Right. And you want to show, demonstrate the intellectual curiosity. Um, it's kind of funny now, but when I was applying for grad school, I remember thinking, I need to show my brilliance. I need to show that I can do it and I'm the best and I just know so much. And, um, you know, there's like, you're, just, you're trying to put your best foot forward. Um, and you may have some anxiety around like, do I know enough, right? There's just like, am I good enough? And the, the funny part about this is that faculty kind of they have a good understanding of where you should be at that level mm -hmm. and so no faculty is ever really assuming that you know a lot and that's not a condescending thing like they don't think you're stupid right so they the intellectual curiosity piece is actually extremely important because they know that you don't know certain things they know that they want to know if you they can teach you those things um yeah. That's what's really important because they look at you and they're like, okay, yeah, of course you haven't read this and you haven't done that. You've never done this technique before. They're asking to see if you have, and that's cool if you have, but it's not a requirement. And I think that's something that it takes a while for people to understand in the same way that you can write in your statement, I want to do imaging. I want to study microbiology. And they're going to take that and say, yeah, you might still do that, but chances are you're going to come into our department, realize there's another faculty you didn't think you'd work with, and then it works out perfectly. And you're studying like crystallography or something. And so they, under they themselves understand that there's a plasticity in what you're going to study when you get there. So you do need to focus on demonstrating, have a focus, but it's a curiosity that's going to keep you there mm -hmm. and get you in the door. So I think since we're sort of shifting to this, uh, how you, uh, no, just, and that's very meta. We're talking meta right now. <laughs> uh, shifting to um, how you're selecting your institution, there's going to be some things that probably you haven't aren't going to bear in mind, and I feel like we we like I didn't necessarily look into, but I and I know a lot of people regret, which is like like the material and lived conditions of what graduate life is going to be like at mm, that school. Mm -hmm. See what how much is the stipend. See what the cost of living is. Exactly. What healthcare is going to be like. See if there, are there going to be other funding opportunities? Like, would you be able to like apply to like learn, uh, do a pedagogy course? Uh, do they have other grants available for uh, conference funding for students? Yeah. There's all these other things that will make a huge impact on what your experience is like as a human being as well as professionally that I think it's harder to think about doing research on because you're also maybe focusing on like, I need to think about my research idea and find good people. But these other things are the ones that are really going to affect your ability to finish. Right. That is actually very true. And if you were 
a my if you're a member if you identify with a um, minority group are there are there units on campus that support those types those students so I was recently talking with a group of students um, I was at a conference and I remember they were they were telling me about some issues they were having and I said well all you got to do is just go talk to your diversity programs officer and you know because that's what I would have done when I was at Cornell and then they said we don't have that office Liz we, we don't, or we don't have that person mm. who does that thing that you're talking about. And I remember thinking like, oh, I didn't realize other schools didn't have that. And so, you, and it's, they may have it, it may be a different name, may have different function, and I think that gets down to like cultural politics at a school. But you want to ideally be at a school where it's easy to find those resources, to mm -hmm. easy to know if it's there. Because if it's easy to find, that's your, at least your first indication that it might be easy to walk into their door. Mm -hmm. And to also sort of consider the fact that like a lot of great institutions are sort of in the middle of nowhere like if yeah that means like if you're again if you're a person of color there's probably not going to be really like much community or food that you're um there's nowhere to get your hair done yeah that's a big problem in Ithaca actually <laughs> uh, there's not many places that do black hair in my understanding I think you told me that they there actually subsidize places because they know that it's an issue there are a few are like, like they're like okay there are two two or three women I know, and sometimes they don't even like telling people they do it because then they'd be overrun with students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like also being queer and being in a small town. Mm -hmm. It also means like um, you might end up dating everyone in your program, which also gets really you messy. You date everyone. Yeah. Uh, but particularly <laughs> if you're queer, it could be like very difficult that there might not be um, yeah. social circles that are developed outside of the university. Yeah. Or let's think about the other side. Grad student stipends are more or less the same, the same range. Um, so let's say I made, I'm just going to give it a number. Like, let's say there's a rural school and I made $30,000 because, oh, wait, let's make it even more normalized. Let's say I won the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship Program. Ooh. Okay. So let's say I won a fellowship and it doesn't matter where I am, the government's going to give me $30,000. I think they're actually up to like 33 now, which is crazy, but it's $30,000. Okay. So if I'm in North Carolina, that's going to take me a little bit farther than if I'm in UC Berkeley in San Francisco, um, where housing is ridiculous. Housing is absolutely ridiculous. And they do not raise your stipend because you're in a city mm -hmm. that has three times the living cost. Yeah. It just means that you're living with like five people or something like yeah, that. Yeah, even faculty there can't get places. Right. So I, I would think about, um, I think this is a personal thing. Um, what kind of experience do you want to have? I know that I was a country bumpkin. I came from a very small town, and I was determined to be in a city. Um, and so that really motivated my undergrad moves. And then, you know, it just, I happenstance into Cornell, really. Um, so those are things that you should think about and really think about what you want. Mm -hmm. Think about what you, what you might need for your career. But I'm thinking about um, how some people think about where they should go to school for graduate based on where they went for their undergrad. And really? I kind of want, yeah. Okay. Like, um, so I'm actually thinking from the admissions perspective where people who went to big state schools, the teacher to student ratio might meet is like larger than it is, let's say at a small liberal arts college where you probably were able to directly talk with your professor anytime you mm -hmm. wanted. It was a small classroom, and it was more of a caring, nurturing environment, whereas the, the state school, the professor may not know your name. Um, it's kind of like tougher. It's a mm -hmm. tougher environment to swim in. And so what I've, what I've found um, 
is that sometimes people either self-select themselves and say, well, I my school is so small, maybe I can't survive in a bigger school or more prestigious competitive school. And I would say it's it's not that's not true. And um and if anything, you actually have a very solid background because you probably those students tend to understand the information more because they had a deeper relationship with their advisors. Um, you, and you may not have had as much of a research experience because it may not have been a research intense institution. Um, so it changes like how you adapt to certain things, but not overall how well you fare. So mm-hmm. don't self-select yourself out before you actually apply to these kind of big schools. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's another thing to talk about is like prestige of institutions. Yeah. Because that's probably, like we haven't talked about it yet, but that's probably how you're narrowing down what you want to do is like, oh, I'm going to hit the Ivies plus Stanford, mm-hmm. MIT, mm-hmm. Um, and so forth. And yeah, that, that's that's valid. Um, so, I'll, But I think it's like, it's, it's a tricky thing. Uh, there's, on the one, I think it's also a question to yourself of like what you want to be able to do afterwards and what mm. types of institutions give you certain types of mobility, mm. but also what your priorities are because I think that people do go to smaller schools and are very happy with it but also depends like do you want to be able to go internationally do you want a research focused career what places are going to have the money to give you in terms of all these like little grants that will position you better that will get let you get to archives that will let you get to conferences and like it's like you don't want to just tell people to to chase prestige but there are things like very real material aspects of it like that make your life your experiences yeah like so for instance when i was applying um, I applied to the States this, being a Canadian because I knew, talking to my p- professors in Cana- uh, Canadian academia, that... In Canada? Yeah, Canadian <laughs> Canada, um, that the majority of tenure-track jobs in English in Canada go to people with American degrees, not Canadian degrees. That is just a sad reality of it, mm. and of which, of course, contributes to like the devaluation of our own institutions and so forth, and there's a lot of things we can get into, but there's this sort of thing that if I want to get a job and I have any possibility of going back to Canada, this is what I have to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As it was, there were no jobs in Canada anyway, but you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I do know people try to game the system as in, when should I go for that Midas touch, right? That school where like, if I go here, I can go anywhere after that. And, um, some people like try to go do that either in their PhD program and other people say, okay, I went to such and such school, but for my postdoc, I'm going to go to Harvard or MIT to get that. And then I can apply for a faculty position there. Um, so this is interesting because I agree with the stuff that Zion is saying about prestige and I'm going to leave it at that. And there's the other thing, the other weird intricacy about um, grad school where even though you're going applying to a department, a school and a department, you're also just applying to a lab. And so let's say that your PI, the person you work with, your faculty advisor, is like a superstar. And they're a superstar, but not at like one of those Ivy League schools. That's also still credible. That's also good. So like if you have the kind of PI where if you mention his or her name, they're like, oh, okay, you're, you're good then that's also worth going to that place, even if it's not, um, you know, an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the kind of intel you wouldn't just know off the bat. You would know that from talking with other people in the field. Again, if you, if you have like a faculty advisor, that's the kind of thing you want to know. And even 
the kind of thing that would help you get into that lab, honestly. If you had a professor who said, oh, I know Jim, I know Susie, and they just send that email. Yeah, it's about networks, like who, which people are plugged into which networks. Which, it really is and important. Like, I guess like that's also when we're talking about letters, like how you're selecting people. Uh, try to see like where do they do their degrees because mm-hmm. then that means that they're going to have a better sense of like what you're going to have to do for the application, but like their name also may carry different weight. Yeah. Yeah. I had the benefit of um, the guy I was working with as an undergrad was a big deal. And I didn't know he was a big deal because I'm an undergrad and I'm like, I don't, he, he taught a class and I was like, that sounded cool. Um, but when a strategy that I used for grad school was I knew that he had a huge, a lot of progeny. <laughs> Like, that sounds awful. That, 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 uh, he had, he's he, very fertile. His, like, he's very, his oats were everywhere. So his students were very successful, and they were mm. in faculty at very successful places. And so I knew, so I just literally said, like, hey, can you email your student mm-hmm. <laughs> who's at Harvard right now, like a faculty member there? And he was, of course, he's like, sure. And then that was, like, a connection for me, um, which I guess I'm pointing it out, not because I think that's an experience that everyone has, but because there are people who don't have that experience, who don't know that that is what a lot of people use to get into doors. Yeah, and I guess that's also the, another thing we need <laughs> to confusing. acknowledge is like, like, look, we have studies that show that if you're a person of color, you're less likely to have these type of mentorship networks. Yeah. Um, and so we want to also acknowledge that. Uh, and to know that if the, also if things don't work out the way that you quite want them, sometimes it's because like there's all these invisible sort of privileges that you don't really think about that that people develop mentors differently, and it's about individual relationship, but it's also structural. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah. Sorry. So get lots of advice, get um, help, and and you want to make sure the help is inside of your field and not out, and not simply outside. I, I, I mentioned this because a mis a, I don't want to say mistake. Okay, sure. A mistake that people make sometimes is they're afraid of talking to people in their field, whether they because they feel inferior, because they're not in that network, because they just want to like look perfect or whatever that reason is. And so they're more likely to get help from a friend, someone who's nice. Well, everyone should be nice to you, but you know, someone who like they feel comfortable with. And if and that can be a challenge because if you're getting advice from someone not in your field, you they could it could not be good advice. Mm-hmm. Or it could be very good advice generally, but not helpful for making you seem very qualified. Again, remember that intellectual curiosity, um, the kind of understanding of the broad field and where to go and who the major players and what the future directions are. Those are the things you want to make sure your application has that someone who's not in your field may not have. And so I want to encourage you that if you're doing a self-check right now and you're finding that you aren't saying yes to all the some of the questions that we're kind of posing or it, you're you kind of feel like you're behind that this is the opportunity to take that and say I want to develop that relationship mm-hmm. I need that because ultimately where um, people particularly disenfranchised and this goes for um, gender minorities racial minorities but also if you're lower income if you just don't have access to privilege that way um, this is what's going to stop you from being as best as you think you can really be if you don't have access to these networks, if mm-hmm. you don't have that intel that the networks give you. Mm-hmm. And also, you're going like, to read as an outsider. Yeah, and I was also going to say, like, if you feel weird about this, that's another thing to consider because the way that we're talking about managing relationships with faculty and with, like, schools, that is going to be your life as an academic. Yeah. 
it's always going to be managing relationships to people that are more powerful than you. Yeah. Until, I don't know, we're, no, we're nowhere near there. It's going to be several decades. <laughs> no. uh, but that's like, like knowing that it's like this, there's a, such a huge interpersonal component to the intellectual life of what goes behind the scenes of like the studies and the flashy like headlines that you see um, from your discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I was also going to say like another deadline to bear in mind is like, see if there's any um, grants you can apply for as you're going um, oh yeah as you're going and mention this. that in your application yeah that i've applied to this master's grant i i was very lucky in that regard like to be able to like have um, ex additional external funding but so if it exists apply for it get all the money you can mm -hmm. my general advice in academia like get all the money yeah 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 it mentioned that you're applying for it, it shows that you're forward thinking but also there's a reality of this which is if you have your own funding, you look like a fantastic scientist all of a sudden. Yeah. So that said, let's say um, you submitted your application in November. You apply for NSF or a Ford Foundation Fellowship. You should both try for those if you're in STEM. Um, and it is now January and you haven't yet heard from people. Or let's say it's February or some date before and you haven't heard from people. But you do hear back from a fellowship you've applied to. Email them. Email your schools and say, oh... You know, I heard that I made it to the next stage of this mm -hmm. application process. I, I Or I have an official confirmation that I got this. Like, that will that 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 will help. Yeah. That because, changes things. Because I think that admissions is also thinking not just about your suitability and, like, compatibility, but, like, they're, they also have a budget they're working with yes. in terms of how many people they can accept. And if you're coming in with your own funding, like, that loosens things up a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a process. It... Um, it's like its own course. Like everything, it should take you, you know, maybe eight months to prepare this. Mm -hmm. But realistically, because of, like, you know, our own human vices, some people do that in way less and they're still successful. So I just keep that in mind. We're kind of giving you the ideal when you just start, and that's not always what life is like. But it's kind of what you should look at. Um, this is where you start building your relationships. This is like the beginning of your academic journey, but also... Even if you go off and do a different career, um, it's the beginning of a professional journey mm -hmm. because everything is going to involve relationships, um, understanding the political landscape, understanding how to read and answer what a proposal is asking for mm -hmm. or what people are asking for and doing what they said. And I think this is particularly important because not everyone wants to be career academics. And I don't think, genuinely, I actually really don't think that the only reason to go to grad school is because you want to be an academic. I actually do think there are lots of skills you learn. I think that you get a deep dive into the pedagogy of your field that you can actually use outside of academia because people want to know this information and you would have now just spent five years learning what the state of the art of the field is. Yeah, I'd also say that it is a bit different in the humanities because there are so much for your jobs and like of course our, the skills that you U.S. Um, amass are just as important, but I feel like Alt-Ac is still developing in the humanities um, and being able to, so there's very few programs that know how to properly advise people. Mm -hmm. People are successful, but like it's it's a struggle. Like I've had, had a lot of friends who didn't go into academia and like they are brilliant people that um, managed to make good careers, but there's fewer guidelines, unfortunately. True. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully we can change that. Yeah, hopefully. It, it's changing. Um, but that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, so I say also think about your personal life. Do you have a significant other? Do you want to have a family? 
you can't just like sort of suspend those are you things single time. but you want to mingle that's that, also important yeah that also too that's also you want to have a life there where you can actually be able to date around or have enough friends so i think I, i'm cutting you off no it's okay that's pretty much what i wanted to say like this is a whole you realize that managing your personal life your family friends your loved ones is an important part of your life you can't just like think that I'm going to get back to it later because life happens. Yeah, your life, it is still your life. Um, but I, I wanted to add that um, even if you're you're single, you want to be in a place where there are enough people around, the populace is large enough that you can have friends who are also single that want to just go out to dinner with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you end up with all families and you're the only single person. Yeah, that gets rough. awkward real quick. And Or there's nothing to do. No one wants to go out or do anything with you. Um, in, a, in a larger city... It's a problem, but in a different way. Because in a larger city, it's just hard to... There are more people, but it's harder to find that person who actually has the same goals as you. Yeah, make your policy. Because it's a bigger city. And it, it could take a while to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was about actually applying. We should probably follow up at some point and talk about the interview stage. Or let's say you're hearing yeah, back from stuff. people. But also like managing your life after applications. And after. It's so <laughs> draining. But yeah, we, we need to head off. And this is really like long enough. Yeah. Hope you guys found it useful. Yeah. Yeah, signing off with PhD Good luck. This is hard.